Wow, it's so nice to see you, dear people, and uh, how we love you. That's the truth. You have been in our corner, and we praise and thank God for every one of you, and uh, just rejoice in the Lord Jesus, just having being a part of this church. Uh, we came, Joe and I, in 81 uh, with our family and this church has helped us to nurture our children and to strengthen our faith all of these years. And it's a thrill just to sit out there and uh, let this, our pastor share with us, and we get out our handkerchief and wipe our eyes, and it just goes on and on. But isn't it wonderful just to be part of this church? We praise God. Well, I'm supposed to be giving faith stories, and... Uh, uh, I must admit that you all can't stay all day, but uh, uh, what stories will I tell and which will I eliminate probably are the, are the issue. Uh, one of my concerns is that not one of us will fail to lay hold of the promises of God and honestly, truly believe those promises. There are so many in the Word of God and God wants us, each one, to just trust the Word of God. And uh, uh, the Apostle Paul put it this way. He said in Galatians 5 and verse 6b, he said, The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. Now, when the Apostle Paul says the only thing that counts, he should have our attention, right? What is the only thing that really counts? Apparently, he's boiled it down to one thing. I remember hearing uh, some famous guys say uh, rule one, and he gave his rule one, and then he gave his rule two. He said, when rule two fails, go back to rule one. Well, that's what we're doing. As all of the rule twos are going to fail. But Paul's rule one is, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. And so, uh, my heart's desire is to try to encourage your faith by telling some of my stories today that God uh, graciously let uh, our family and the ministries walk through. In Malachi 3, our pastor spoke about three months ago about Malachi 3.10. It just so happens that that figures into my testimony as well. I, I was about six months old in the Lord. I got saved in September of 1961, and a few months passed, and I had people around me that took an interest in me and got me looking at the Word of God on a regular basis and starting to instruct me. But it was about six months into my relationship with Christ that I woke up in the middle of the night with a scripture just going through my mind. And I knew the scripture. I had heard it before. I perhaps didn't know where to find it, but I knew about it. And it happened to be Malachi 3.10, bring ye all your tithes into the storehouse, that there might be meat in my house. And prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, that I'll not open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing that you'll not be able to receive. 
We, that's a common verse. All of us know that verse. But what I, uh, as that verse went through my mind over and over again, I just sat up in bed. I was in bed. And I just sat up and I thought, the Lord wants to teach me from the Scripture. And so I began to reflect on the Scripture and going over and over and over again, that word. And you know, as I was going over it, I told the Lord, Lord, I think I'm tithing already. What, what is this? But as I went over it at one time through it, I quoted it a little differently. Bring your all into the storehouse. And when, when I said those words, it was like the Holy Spirit just said, yes, this is it. I want you to bring your all into the storehouse. You know, he doesn't want just a piece of us. He doesn't want a piece of us. He wants us. He doesn't want what you have. He wants you. And when he has you, then he has what he wants, and we become his choice possession. And so as I reflected on that, I thought, God wants me to bring it all. And so I remember as I was sitting up in bed, in my mind, I got out the title to my home and signed the bottom of it and presented it to him, and then my business, and then my vehicle, my family, everything I owned, my accounts receivable, all the stuff I had in business. And I just said, Lord, it's yours. And what I really learned, what I really learned, I was acknowledging God's ownership of everything. He owns everything. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and everyone that lives in it. God claims ownership of everything. But there are rebels on the planet that think they own themselves, that think they, what they have is theirs. But it's not true. And you know, as I began to reflect on this particular scripture, I realized the promises that follow. Now, between the services, I got bawled out by my wife because I didn't give the promises that are in Malachi 3 and 4. But just quickly, uh, I have a list of 18 promises that start at verse 10. Promise 1, I will open the windows or the floodgates of heaven. When God says he's going to open floodgates, do you expect a little or a lot? He says, I will pour out for you a blessing. The blessing will be so enormous that there will not be room to receive it. Wow, those are big promises. And then in verse 11, he gives promise 3, I will rebuke the devourer. Another promise in verse 11, he will not destroy the land, nor your vine. Verse 12, two more promises, all nations will call you blessed. You'll be a delightful land. Verse 16 is three more promises. Those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened. Do you have God's ear? Those who feared the Lord spoke often with one another, and the Lord listened in a book of remembrance was written about them. God's got two books, the Lamb's Book of Life in Glory, and there are no erasers there when he writes your name. And here's a book of remembrance. He's remembering people 
that have taken him at his word and believe his promise. Wonderful stuff. Praise God. Then he goes on to say in verse 17, is promise 11 and 12. They will be mine, my jewels. You know, I don't know anything about you, but when I have anything precious, I think, what do you keep a precious jewel in? Well, you have a velvet pouch, right? God says that you are so special to him that he treats you as jewels, and he says, I'll spare them as a man spares his own son. And then verse 18 is promise 13. God gives us discernment, wonderful gift. And then in chapter 4, verse 2, he says, the son of righteousness will give you healing. And then 15, the verse that most of the ladies just love, it says, you will grow fat as well-fed calves. But then in chapter 4 and verse 5 is promise 16, I will send Elijah before the dreadful day of the Lord. And Verse 6 of chapter 4 are probably the most precious. Talk about reconciliation. He says, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. Anybody here got a need to be reconciled with your dad or your mom or you want your kids to come back home? I see that hand. Yeah, that's true. And so God has got these amazing promises for us and he desires, he desires to bless us with every one of those. Well, you know, I, my, my whole story starts way back in 61, but it was 1969 when the father began prompting me about Richmond, California. And uh, it was during that time that I came to a settled conclusion that the Lord wanted me to go to Bible school. The Lord had provided me a darling lady who I was going to marry, and I did. I married Jo. She's the choicest gift God ever gave me, I think. And uh, uh, so all, uh, God began to do these, this work, and uh, I sold my home in Florida that I was living in. I just happened to have built a second house, a brand new one, and uh, uh, a single man doesn't need two houses, okay? But I happen to have two houses, and and so I moved a preacher into that house, a poor preacher that was just starting in the ministry, and he lived there for 10 days till he got his, or 10 years, I mean, until he got his church established. And my brother and sister-in-law, they're going to that church now after 42 years still. And it was something of a whirlwind. I married Joe, you know, got started in Bible school, got started at the mission, and Joe was with me 100%. She continued to work at her teaching job, and and I went to the mission, and uh, there was no income promised at the mission. I think after the end of the first year, she was wondering, uh, will Malcolm ever get a job, a real job? Because there was no salary at the mission the first year. I always say it was good because they finally figured out what I was worth, and they started giving me $25 a week. And then after a few more months, they gave me a raise. I think they reconsidered. I mean, what? This wasn't ridiculous. So they raised me to $30. But it was about the time that Mary Beth, our second little girl, was about to be married, uh, born, that, uh, that we ran out of money. 
And uh, it was obvious we were running out of money. We'd pooled everything we owned, and uh, we were running out of money. And uh, so I wrote my brother a letter. I said, it looks like the mission's not going to be able to support us and our family. You got any room for me? Maybe I'll come back to the building business. Well, some time went on, and I also spoke to one of our board members and told him that I, I, I've run out of money. I can't stay any longer. Something's got to give. And uh, that one board member went to the board, and the board meeting came around, and that evening, I'll never forget it, the first order of business was Malcolm's salary. And they did their motion and seconded and voted, and they voted me $400. Well, I just pushed back in my chair against the wall and said, what have you just done? Did you just vote money into existence? And this uh, Ken Miller Sr. who was on the board then, and he just hit the table and said, what we have done, we have done by faith. Whoa. Maybe, maybe he had read Paul's, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. But the strange thing happened. I went home that night, and at 6 o'clock in the morning, my phone was ringing. I got up to answer it. It was my brother. You know, isn't that an interesting consequence? He responds. He said, I got a big apartment complex to build. You want to come home? Come on. I can get the job, I've got to get it, so I gotta, I'm going to give you 24 hours to make up your mind. He said, I'll write you in at $5,000 a month, um, but I've got to know in 24 hours. Well, it was amazing. I, I was uh, kind of go- walking around like this. Lord, I've got to hear from heaven. When are you going to talk to me? I've got to hear. But that night... Uh, Doris Diaz, one of our members, another came by our house, and we prayed till 11 o'clock at night. And at 11 o'clock at night, I got a word from God. He wants me to stay in Richmond by faith alone. And so I had to get in touch with my brother, and uh, we and and you know, I have, a week or two after that, I I kind of looking around, saying, Lord. Are you sure this is not your first mistake? (laughs) But I did learn that the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. Well, uh, there are many, many stories in our life. And uh, the first time I've ever heard anybody stand in this pulpit and just give a testimony the whole time. But the pastor said, share your faith stories, and so here we go. You know, it was about 1978. We just ran out of space. We had a little 8,000-square-foot building, and we just simply, we had people sleeping in, in the lobby. We had people sleeping on pallets on the floor of the chapel. I mean, the people were just crushing us at the rescue mission. And uh, we realized that we had to do something. And so we began to pray about it. But the more we prayed about it, uh, our, our, our faith was so weak. Uh, to be honest with you, we, Joe and I both were just in total turmoil the whole time. 
we, we drew up a one-story building and said, well, if we build this, we think it's going to take $100,000. And uh, there's probably not $100,000 in California to build this thing. And so we were stretched all out and just waiting upon God and, and really just frustrated, just in anxiety, to be honest with you. Our faith was so weak, it was just amazing. But we met a man that I had never met before, and, and he didn't know anything about our story. He didn't even know my name. But the Lord used that man to give me three Bible promises. He wrote them on a piece of paper so I could take them home with me. And he didn't know anything about our situation. The first promise was, see if I can find it on my notes here, Philippians 4, 19 and 20. My God shall supply all of your need. The second verse he gave me was Psalm 84, 11. No good thing will God withhold from those who walk uprightly. And the third verse was in Nehemiah 9, 20, 21. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from my mouth. You gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness so that they lacked nothing and their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. Three verses. And I latched hold of those three promises of God for all I was worth. And we began to move forward with this whole thing. Well, instead of building a one-story building, we decided finally to build a two-story building. And, uh, and we began that thing. It all started with a fire at the mission. And you think, uh, I remember standing with the, with the guys in our program across the street, and the, the smoke was coming out around the top of the building, and we prayed, Lord, if you want to destroy the building, it's your building, Lord. Do anything you want to with it. Well, the fire department got the fire put out, and there was about four or 500 square feet of the second floor that had been destroyed, and a guy volunteered to rebuild it, to fix it. By the time the smoke settled, so to speak, and, and we got a check from the insurance company, we had $25,000 to start with, just like that. God takes the tough things and makes good things happen from them. We also got another gift from a foundation. We'd never uh, talked to foundations before, but one of them gave us 25000 And by the time we got the mission built, and I think the Lord was just showing us, Malcolm, you struggled so long in unbelief about this building. By the time we got it built, it was finished, it was paid for, and it was fully furnished. It was just a wonderful gift from God. And the pastor still gives me a hard time about we had our building paid for, and, they, and this one isn't paid for yet. Mine wasn't this pretty, however, but uh, the grace of God. Well, at any rate, on December the 20th, 1980, I was sitting in my new office, totally furnished complex, and another man walked in that I had never met before. What does God do? God's got his people out there everywhere that we don't know who they are. We don't know their name. He introduced himself, 
and sat down and asked me a question. He said, Malcolm, what would it take, how much money would it take to do anything you want to do? I said, hello? I just finished what I wanted to do, and I'm sitting in the office. But I didn't respond like that. Uh, I, I just quickly said, well, we need a fuel-efficient car. We need a computer. We didn't have one yet. And uh, the third thing, if we had the property just east of us, it would work well for future expansion. And so I put some numbers together and said, I think about 20000 but then immediately I was embarrassed. I, I hadn't told God I needed anything. And I'm telling this complete stranger. He said, well, I was just curious. And he began writing. And he slipped a check across my desk. And just to show you that our God is no debtor. We, uh, that check was for $42,000. And I didn't even have anything to spend it on. God is good. <laughs> Praise God. I just one more story. Um, about 1985, I began to fret about the fact that I had provided nothing for our retirement. And... Uh, uh, but I did more than fret. I began to pray about it. And, and I prayed about it for two or three months at least. And I think in answer to that prayer, God sent a lady into my office that I barely knew. And she said to me, Malcolm, I want to sell you my house for $7,000. And I, I said, Ninan, you can't do that. Your house is worth a lot more than that. You need to rethink this. And she said, if you don't buy my house, I'll sell it to somebody else for $7,000. Well, her sister worked for me. Her sister was a believer. And so I went to her sister. Her sister had given the mission her house that was next door to Ninon's the year before because we were all involved in providing, uh, helping to provide for a million Bibles to go to China. And we got all pumped up about it, and Iris got pumped up about it. And so she gave me her house. And uh, I sold it, and we used the money for Bibles for China. And she was working for me all this time. And at any rate, I went to her, and I said, Iris, your sister's not thinking. Go and talk some sense into your sister. She needs to get an appraisal and do it the right way, you know. And Iris said, well, Malcolm... If you don't buy her house for $7,000, she'll sell it to somebody else for $7,000. Can you imagine? At any rate, to make a long story short, I did, I did buy the house, and I made Iris half owner in it. I thought, boy, she's already given away more than she could afford to give away. At any rate, we started renting it. And uh, Have any of you ever been involved in rental housing? On Skid Row? Well, people would live there six months, and then they, they wouldn't pay you anymore. And at the end, of, you finally got them out six months later. You had to go in and rebuild the house almost. After five years, Iris says, I'm, I'm going to another ministry. I want you to buy me out. So we got an appraisal, and I, I did buy her out. And uh, at, at any rate, I'm making a long story short, about 10 years of being in that house, 
And after having repainted it, my children are the world's greatest painters because they all help me every year when we repainted it. But uh, at any rate, uh, I got tired of it and determined to sell it and found a buyer who bought it for 42000 bucks. By that time, I didn't need the house for my retirement because the mission had already begun to develop a retirement program. And so I thought, you know, I don't need that money. And so I talked to the board and said, if I put this money in a special account, I'd like to designate how I want those dollars to be used later on. Well, that was probably the mid-90s, and we put the money into a mutual fund with that designation. And when we were ready to retire on the last day of December 1999, that had grown to $85,000. Now, I've got to make a long story short here, so let me get going. What we decided to do is start a ministry called Homeless Rescue Services where we would work with third world poor pastors and help them. They were working in Skid Row and they were working among people of Skid Row so they had no way of generating any income. So we began to help them. And... Uh, Right now, we have 23 poor pastors scattered all over the world that we're helping, that we were able to meet over the period of about the last 30 years. And so we know each one personally. Well, I want to tell you about one couple, uh, Pastor Daniel and his wife, Tara. We met them, I don't know, it must have been about 2002, and we were impressed, and we decided we want to start helping. So we started sending them a regular gift, periodic, regular gift. And, uh, and finally, we got a letter, and it was from Pastor Daniel, and he said, we didn't know you were going to give to us regularly. Uh, we would like to start a school for the children. And uh, what would you like to name it? Well, I wasn't about to name it, but about a month later, I got another letter and said, we started our school and we've named it the Joe Lee School. So Joe Lee is a famous person in that part of the world. And, uh, but it was interesting. This couple left a church. They were both on the staff of a church in Hyderabad. But God began to stir their hearts about going to tribal people. I'm talking about naked people. Uh, illiterate people, people that lived in mud shacks uh, and uh, that kind of thing. And, but God wouldn't release them from that, that prompting to go to those people. Well, the pastor said, it's not God's will for you to go, I need you here. But God wouldn't let them off the hook. And so Tara was with us last December, and I asked her, I said, when you left the church, what did you go with? She said, I went with two bags of possessions and 500 rupees. Well, I did a little arithmetic, and I realized they left with 15, equivalent 15 U.S. dollars. They rode a bus to the end, about 200 miles, as I recall, to the end of the bus line, and then they walked in for several hours to where the tribals were, and they built a mud hut with a thatched roof and moved in with the people. Um, wonderful people. Uh, but they had nothing. 
their shoes wore out. It was unlike the children of Israel, whose shoes did not wear out. But their shoes wore out, and they finally got enough to buy one pair of shoes, and Terah wore them half-time, and Daniel wore them half-time. And as they were going up to a tribal village in the mountains, Terah's feet got blistered and cut, and her husband was feeling so bad, and Terah said, she told me this last December, she said, Jesus went up a mountain too, and he suffered much worse than I suffered, and I'm happy to serve the Lord and to suffer for Jesus too. Well, at any rate, was that ministry effective? Yeah, they won one person. Took them a year to win the first person. And then they began to win others. They were illiterate, so they began to teach the illiterates how to read and write. That took about two years. And then they take another two years to teach them the Bible. And then they send them out to pastor a church. What was the final word in that whole thing? The final word was they now have 26 pastors and churches. They have one well, I saw a picture uh, of a baptism where they had 119 people they were baptizing at one time. And their combined believers there are now 3,400 believers in 19 years. Well, Pastor Daniel and Tara would tell us, you know, I believe it. I believe what Paul said. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. I want to tell you one last story, and then we'll close. I was here at the church, and I sit right over there, and uh, at some point, the pastor told us to go and greet somebody we didn't know, and I walked right across the aisle and greeted a man there. And I said, hi, my name's Malcolm. I'm glad you're here. I don't know who you are. And he told me what his name was. And then he said, are you Malcolm Lee? And I said, yes. He said, well, you're the reason I'm here. And I said, say what? I didn't know him. You know, we had fretted if our first 10 years at the mission had really amounted to anything. And this young man said to me, my daddy, my daddy, who was an alcoholic, he came to the mission in the mid-70s. He got Jesus in his heart. He came back and raised us kids for Jesus Christ. And he said, you're the reason I'm here. Oh, is it worth it? That's the bottom line. You know, the pastor in Florida and their church still supports our little ministry that we started. He still pastors my brother. The gospel's going out, and the saints are being trained there. You know, now we've got not one building, but three or four buildings, maybe five or six at the mission. We started it 32 years ago. Today, they're housing 250 people every night. The gospel is going out, and new converts are being established in the Word of God. And what about this homeless rescue services we started 12 years ago? The gospel is going out and the saints are being trained. And God has provided for the poor of the inner city pastors in the third world. How much? I did the arithmetic about two months ago. 
God has provided over a half a million dollars for those poor pastors all over the world. Our God is big enough. We need to get back to the promises of God, hang on to them, believe God for them, hold God to them, and get on with our life and ministry. Those 18 promises, by the way, my wife still has a few extra copies of that if anybody wants them. Thanks for letting me come. It's a blessing to share with you. We love you so much.